Well, if you've been around here for any length of time, you know that the baptism of Jesus is an event which I cherish. And contrary to what you might think at first glance, it's an event which is rich in significance and importance for the life and the ministry of the church. So by way of introduction, let me give you a couple reasons for this. In other words, why this might be more important than it might appear. First, the baptism of Jesus is recorded in all four Gospels. And that means that outside of the events of Jesus' last week on earth, the last week of his life, that puts it in very elite company. And secondly, as I hope we'll see, one could preach almost everything one ever needs to preach from this text alone. You could preach the whole history of redemption from the baptism of Jesus. So we're going to look at it under the six headings, which are in the bulletin on the back inside page. I won't list them off. They're right there for you. First one is word and sacrament. So we're in Mark's gospel, chapter one. Mark's gospel opens with the words, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So for Mark, the beginning of the gospel means the onset of Jesus' public ministry. You'll notice that in Mark's gospel, there's no genealogy, there's no infancy narratives, there's no Christmas story. For Mark, the beginning of the gospel is the fact that John the Baptist comes baptizing in the wilderness. So baptism, believe it or not, is for the evangelist, for Mark, the very fountainhead of the gospel. And the account of the baptism of our Lord comes right there prominently at the opening, front and center of the gospel, for Mark. And so baptism, then, is not like an alien you know, addition, some sort of weird appendage to the gospel for Mark. For Mark, it's an account of where the gospel begins, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, have we ever done this? Who among us does this? Someone says, please explain to me what the gospel is. And we say, sure, let me start with the baptism of Jesus. So there's like an instinct here that Mark has, and all the gospel writers have it, that we don't have. I think it's an important instinct. It tells us something important about the gospel. It's a sacramental gospel. There's a sacrament at the opening of the gospel. Right? So that means the gospel uses stuff. Right? The the thing about sacraments are, is they take visible concrete matter and they use it to communicate grace. So that what we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ is not simply a set of propositions. Although, of course, the gospel does have propositions. But we're taught here that the gospel is always embodied. It's always enacted, which is why the liturgy of the church is so important. It's a weekly reenactment of the gospel, a renewal weekly, a corporate act of renewal. Right? We glorify God, we are nurtured, we hear his word proclaimed so we can proclaim it. 
So verse 4 in our text, again, this is Mark 1, says, John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance. Notice this. Notice how the word, preaching, and the sacrament, baptism, are joined here. We say this a lot around here, but this is one of these texts which is basic to grasping it. The church lives by word and sacrament, and they must never be artificially separated. What's remarkable in this short little text is that John preaches in verse 4. He baptizes in verse 5. He preaches Christ in verse 7 and 8, and he baptizes Christ in verse 9. The gospel is a word and sacrament gospel. This is what we mean when, we, when our catechisms speak, for example, of the ordinary means of grace. And when one embraces this kind of gospel in this kind of way, one is kind of inoculated against newfangled strategies. So that's the first thing. The second thing is eschatology. Now, that's a word I use a lot. And I I mention this every time I preach on the baptism of John because it comes in January. And I explain the word in this sermon. So the explanations here today underwrite my use of it for the rest of the year. So basically... Eschatology means things concerning the end or, or things concerning the age to come. But we'll see it's a little richer idea than that. So we ask ourselves, why does Mark start his gospel here? I think the Old Testament citation, which is in verses 2 and 3 from the prophets, helps us grasp this. The whole history of Israel is a preparation for the gospel. Yet, yet, God said he would send a special messenger uniquely to prepare the way of the Lord before his revelation, before the display of his glory to the nations. This is John the Baptist. Concerning John the Baptist, Jesus tells us expressly in Matthew's gospel that John the Baptist is Elijah whom God promised to send before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. This is why the appearance of John the Baptist is like a hinge on which the whole Bible swings. He's the last Old Testament prophet. He represents the culmination of God's work with Israel in preparing her for the dawning day of God. And this is what we mean, this dawning day of the Lord, when we say the gospel is an eschatological gospel. And again, we are going to unpack it a little bit. And I want to do that here. So if you look at the accounts of this event, this baptism of Jesus in Matthew's gospel and in Luke's gospel, something very striking stands out. John is out in the countryside baptizing and people are fleeing to him. And he calls those who are coming to him to be baptized a brood of vipers. It's a very, perhaps, untactful call to worship. (laughs) He says to them, who warned you to flee from the wrath which is to come? 
Then he says to them, don't rest in your Jewish ethnicity. Don't say to yourselves, we're the children of Abraham. We have the covenant. God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. And then he says this. He says, the axe is already laid to the root of the tree. And every tree which doesn't bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. And then he says, there's one coming after me who will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. So this clearly implies this fiery, purging baptism at the hands of Messiah. And then Jesus is said to be, now again, I'm talking about in Matthew and Luke's account. Jesus, John goes on and says, is ready with his winnowing fan to clear his threshing floor. To gather up the wheat into his barn. To burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now you've heard these words before, but what I want you to see is this. This is before Jesus has even begun his public ministry. John says he already has his axe in the root. He already has the the winnowing fan by which he will judge the nations at the end of the age. That action is already underway. He is ready. He's ready to burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire to gather the wheat into his barn right now. Who warns you to flee from the wrath which is to come? These are extremely strong words. John piles up image after image of this coming judgment. Fierce images. Fire and brimstone preaching given to a people who are freely coming to be baptized. And verse 5 tells us in our text, confessing their sins as they come. So what is going on here? Well, John clearly sees the coming of the kingdom in Jesus as a coming judgment. Right? When Jesus appears, when he ushers in the kingdom of God, he is bringing the final judgment of the last day forward into history. Right? He is saying that that fiery day is now at hand. The end the Greek word for which is eschaton. The end, not just the future, the end of all things is now brought forward and is right on top of you. The axe is already down into the root of the tree. That's what we mean when we say the gospel at every point is an eschatological gospel. That's what we mean. Because that's what Jesus means. It is the future judgment brought into our time. It is the age to come invading this age. It is heaven descending from earth. And where this is lost, the gospel gets shrunk down, either into an ideology, a worldview type of thing, or a me and Jesus type of thing. It loses its whole explosive, fiery, transforming character. But something amazing and really truly wonderful happens here. And it's the reason why the baptism of Jesus is celebrated and must be celebrated right after Advent, which is where we are in the church year. The one 
who will administer the wrath which is to come. Right? The one with the axe laid to the root, the one who baptizes with fire, the one who already has the winnowing fan in his hand, the one who is ready to burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire, ready to usher in this kingdom by this fiery judgment, appears. And how does he appear? He appears remarkably shuffling along with the likes of us in the line of people that John is baptizing. There he is, back, he's back over there in the line. He's waiting on line with his guilty countrymen, the unwashed masses, ready to submit to John's preaching and baptism ministry. It's astonishing when you, when you listen to the accents in John the Baptist's sermon to find that the one who's going to administer this wrath is in the line. And that means that Jesus identifies fully with Israel, fully with us, under that scathing account of judgment, coming judgment. That's what we mean when we say the gospel is an eschatological gospel. And then third, righteousness. Now, if we're honest, we'll admit that Jesus' appearance as a candidate for baptism creates some problems for us. I mean, it's not readily apparent why this should be so. It is a baptism of repentance, after all, for the forgiveness of sins. It involves fleeing from the wrath to come, so why does Jesus submit to it? And you'll recall, right, this was obviously a scandal for John. In Matthew's account, John objects when Jesus gets to the front of the line and says, I need to be baptized by you, and why are you coming to me? And our Lord's reply there is quite instructive. He says, permit it to be so for now, and thus we will fulfill all righteousness. It's a little bit cryptic. But Jesus is saying something like this. If I'm going to fulfill all the promises concerning the Messiah and the righteousness of God, which the Messiah brings, then I have to submit to this rite of baptism. I'm going to have to identify with the guilty completely. And so he is baptized into or identified publicly with your sin. My sin, our alienation, our darkness, our need. Right? This is a key to understanding the love of God and Jesus Christ for you. It can be seen in this text in a way which is only matched by how it is seen in the cross. He is identified with our corruption not solely at the cross but throughout the whole of his life. What the Reformed tradition calls his active obedience is for you. It's vicarious. Again, Calvin's famous remark on this is, from the time he took the form of a servant, he began to pay the price for our liberation. What Jesus submitting to baptism means is, he lives identified with you. He stands on our side of the judgment of God, guilty human creature divide. 
He stands over here with the guilty human creatures. He lives identified with you so that he cannot die identified for you. Right? And, and you can't have one without the other. One of the church fathers put this beautifully, this whole idea that Jesus lives for us so that he can die for us. Here's what he said. Even as he fulfilled the righteousness of baptism, he fulfilled the righteousness of being born and growing, of eating and drinking, of sleeping and relaxing. He fulfilled the righteousness of experiencing temptation, fear, flight, sadness, as well as suffering, death, and resurrection. That is, according to the requirement of the human nature he took upon himself, he fulfilled all these acts of righteousness. That's what he means when he says to John, permit it so we can fulfill all righteousness. Jesus, you'll recall, called his death. He called his death a baptism. Right? And that, that death on the cross is a baptism, deeply linked, locked into already this baptism that we're looking at. This baptism in water implies that baptism in blood at Calvary. And that baptism in blood right, is the fulfillment of this baptism in water. That's why here in this text, uniquely, apart from the cross, you can see the love of your Savior for yourself. So that his whole life now is Jesus being baptized into your corruption to heal and restore you. He undergoes baptism, let's put this a different way, so that we can then be baptized into the baptized one. You know, it's interesting, right? His baptism precedes and underlies Christian baptism. We don't often think of that, right? We think, well, we're baptized into Christ, and that's it. But before we were ever baptized into Christ, he was already baptized into our despair and our darkness and our need. Listen to these words from Calvin, startling words. He says this, and he's talking about this event, Jesus' baptism. He says, Christ dedicated and sanctified baptism by his own body, that he might have it in common with us. As the firmest bond of union and fellowship, he has deigned to form with us. It would be impossible to have a higher view of baptism than that. Christ consecrated the sacrament of baptism by submitting to it in his own flesh so that he has it as a bond of community with us. So here in our text, Jesus is saying, they need cleansing, I will be their cleansing. They are confessing their sins, let their sins be confessed on my head. That's why Jesus is in the line. Let the sins be confessed on my head. I will be numbered with the transgressors in my life as well as in my death. So, the wrath which is to come, the axe which cuts down unfruitful trees, the unquenchable fire with which the chaff is burned, all of these, Jesus, the righteous judge, says, put them on my head. And so the fire and the brimstone which John preached and which Jesus will administer 
Jesus, by submitting to this right, says, I will bear them away myself. This is the gospel. And this is a vivid, vivid picture of the gospel. Because here the righteous judge declares, I will be the one judged. That's the righteousness which becomes yours in the gospel. So the fourth point, new creation. Now, in the text, the next thing that happens, right, are these very familiar events. Jesus is baptized. The heavens are torn. The spirit descends like a dove. The father declares, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. It's just a few words, but again, there's this rich, dense set of symbolism here. And I want to say a few things about it. When the spirit descends on Jesus here, like a dove... We're reminded of the Spirit hovering, dove-like, over the original creation. And so Jesus, at his baptism, is revealed as the inaugurator of the new creation. You might have noticed that Genesis 1 was the Old Testament reading today. That's right from the church's lectionary. I don't pick these texts. Right? That's the Old Testament lesson for the baptism of Jesus. At first you might think, that's weird. What's, why, what's that doing there? The reason is, the church knows that the baptism of Jesus means that the same spirit which hovered over the original creation hovers over Jesus who is the new creation. That Jesus' baptism is the remaking of the world. He's the new Adam. The first world was created out of water and the new creation comes through our Lord's baptismal waters. See, this is what I mean when I said you could preach the whole Bible from this event. The dove also reminds us of the dove that returned to Noah's ark. Jesus bears the waters of judgment and thus he is the ark of, the, of salvation. Right? The apostle Peter tells us the flood is a picture of baptism. Jesus is not only the new Adam, he's the new Noah. But there's more. The word for the heavens being torn in the text. The heavens are torn. You'll see that. That is used in the Old Testament for the tearing or the dividing of the Red Sea. And so Jesus is seen here as the new Moses who affects a new exodus out of our bondage to sin. Now you might think this sounds a little fanciful. But the subsequent narrative We heard it read immediately after his baptism. It's right at the end of our text. Has the same spirit which fell on Jesus driving him into the wilderness. After the exodus for Israel, wilderness. After this exodus tearing for Jesus, wilderness. Israel's tempted for 40 years and fails. Jesus tempted for 40 days and prevails. The point is clear. Jesus is the new faithful Moses. He's the new Israel. I'll stop there. But but in this simple, dramatic descent of the Spirit onto the Messiah, he is set forth as the new Adam, the new Noah, the new Moses, the new Israel. In short, he is the new creation. He is all in all, right? This is why Christ is everything to us. Because in the end, 
as the logos or the word or the rationality by which all things were made and through which all things shall be restored. He is indeed all things for us. So the fifth point is the Trinity. This one's easy. It's laying right there on the face of the text. I'm not going to get into the details of the Trinity, but you can see the Father speaks, the Spirit descends, the Son is baptized. There's a long history of uh, criticism that says the Trinity, you know, the Nicene Creed is a third and fourth century invention of the church that kind of complicated and mystified the simple primitive faith of love that Jesus gave us. Well, here's Jesus' very baptism in public ministry, and all three persons are publicly at work. The reason we are baptized into the triune name at that font has its roots right here in the Trinitarian glory, the Trinitarian structure of Jesus' baptism. So from the beginning, the gospel is a Trinitarian gospel. The Trinity is not an afterthought. It's the source of the gospel. It's the goal of the gospel. Finally, the last point is ordination. This is really not a separate point. This is a way of trying to tie all these together and kind of look at everything under one heading. Sort of in a different key. So, in John's Gospel, John the Baptist tells us that Jesus was baptized so that he might be revealed to Israel. So, that means his baptism is kind of like a public ordination, an empowerment for his role as Messiah. Now, we know this is true because of a very interesting reference or allusion to John's baptism later in John's gospel. Jesus is asked a question by his enemies. Here's the question. By what authority do you do these things? So they're worried again about his credentials. And he says this. The master of answering these questions, he says, I'll tell you what. I'll answer your question. First, you answer mine. The baptism of John. Now, they know they're in trouble with already, right? Jesus says, here's my question. The baptism of John. Was it from heaven or was it from men? You know what he's saying? He's saying, if you want to know about the source of my authority for public ministry, then you should look at my baptism at the hands of John. You're asking questions about my credentials? About my authority? Right there. When I was baptized by John, you have the Father's attestation to it. In the Spirit. My baptism is my ordination as Israel's Messiah. And it is this ordination, right, right? This ordination event, this anointing, this empowering with the Spirit, which enables Jesus to live to live as the new Adam and the new Noah and the new Moses and the new Israel, as the new creation. It is this event which Jesus is referring to when he opens his public preaching ministry in the synagogue with the following words. You'll remember this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and he has anointed me. When did this happen? 
It happened in his baptism. He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. So I'm going to conclude here. And here I hope to show you that this this matters deeply to us. It's fitting that this event is placed after the Advent cycle. Because in it, we are reminded that Jesus who humbled himself, who humbled himself to take up our flesh in the incarnation, he has not yet reached the depths of his humiliation. He has miles to go before he sleeps in the grave. And this is why this is such a moving text. It's a text which should stir the depths of your being in love for Christ. If this text can't do it, then we should examine ourselves. What is this text is saying, and what the church has always said by putting the baptism of Jesus right after the Epiphany, right after Christmas, is this. Jesus' descent, his deep descent into your darkness does not terminate with Christmas. It continues down into his whole public ministry. He continues to descend, to empty himself, to stand with us, to identify with us in all of our alienation in all of our desperate need. So here's the whole sermon in one sentence. Jesus, the incarnate judge, is unreservedly and forever on your side. So do not lose heart. You think your sins, your infidelity, your unbelief, Your doubts, your waywardness, your straying are going to undo this love? You think Jesus stands in that line and says, put the fiery judgment of God on my head for them. And then says, oh, well, I've had enough of this guy. This guy really needs to get his act together. This is one of the most heartening texts in the gospel. The Messiah who has done this for you, who has pledged himself this way, does not give up on his people. And it's this baptism and that subsequent baptism in blood at Calvary. They turn that coming judgment ordeal, right, which John spoke of. They turn it. And we all face that judgment ordeal. They turn it into the blessed and healing waters of Christian baptism. That's what this baptism does. And that's why I would urge you to do what our catechisms teach us to do. To improve your baptism. To apply what has happened to you in baptism. Because what has happened to you in baptism is this. The God of this Son has pledged and promised to be your Father. He has bound himself with an oath to wash away your sins, to deliver you from evil, to purge you. And he calls you to believe that promise, to embrace that promise. And the the power, the efficacy, the efficiency of that promise extend across the whole of your life, not just the moment you're baptized. But you should apply your baptism to your soul. Because in it, God has said something. In his son, namely, I will have your sins and your judgment.
confessed and borne on my own head. And then Jesus, when he baptizes you into his baptism, then by faith, by faith, you are united to the one whom verse 11 calls the beloved, well-pleasing to his Father in heaven. So as such, and only as such, we are fully accepted in the beloved. We are beloved in the beloved one. We are baptized in the baptized one. So praise be to God for the baptism of our Lord. Amen.